This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And if you're joining us for the first time this morning, it is Cheryl's birthday. Happy birthday, Cheryl. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just going to blast it every single segment. I'm feeling a lot of birthday love, which for an introvert like me is a little bit of a challenge. Well, if you have have an iPhone, I don't know if it's on anything else, you know, when you text someone happy birthday now, Uh like the balloons pop up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm actually visually imagining... Like every time I say happy birthday to you, that we have balloons, <laughs> balloons coming, coming up, up. <laughs> because of what you said at the top of the hour last hour. So, hey, you you put that thought I, in my I head. I did it. I did exactly. it. Exactly. So we just spoke with Rebecca Massasak, the CEO of TechSoup, where we had a great conversation around how nonprofits are thinking about integrating technology, the need that the whole sector uh, will have for driving their missions. And so we're shifting gears a little bit now to think about impact uh, impact investing, real estate, and how that will drive uh, change and in inclusive economic development. So our next guest is Paul Rabinovich, who's the principal of real estate at New Island Capital. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. Great to be here. It's and great to reconnect. Good morning and happy birthday. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And, and so you are, you're on the West Coast right now, right? I'm in San Francisco. It's yeah. uh, about 6 a.m. and I'm talking impact. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, I'm passionate. We've had all our guests today were from the West Coast. We feel a little guilty having some of them get up at, and talk cogently at 5 in the morning, which I'm incapable <laughs> of doing. But at least you're at the 6 o'clock mark. <laughs> all right. So, so Paul, let's start um, – Let's start a little bit with your background, actually, and talk about, um, you know, your – I think you're an – are you an alum? I am. You yes, are. Am. So so from from Penn and Wharton to, to where you are now, tell us a little bit about that. Well, as you said, I um, I was well-educated at the University <laughs> of Pennsylvania with a uh, double degree in uh, urban planning, urban and regional planning, as well as real estate finance. And with that degree, I promptly went into the nonprofit uh, world and was director of land protection doing real estate acquisitions for the Nature Conservancy for a number of years. And got uh, my feet wet and did a lot of land transactions with a social purpose on uh, in the environmental side. Switched from there to being a green developer um, and redeveloping brownfields, which is contaminated properties that uh, that can be restored and brought back into into service in urban infill areas. And was for most of my career a real estate developer, developing uh, affordable housing and developing market rate housing and urban uh, infill mixed use kind of properties um, on brownfields until I had this opportunity to go to New Island Capital and become an investor and use what I've learned as a developer with a social purpose uh, um, and apply it towards finding the most talented developers out there who are trying to achieve that difficult balance of, of impact and profit and uh, being their capital partner. And that's uh, that's what my role is at New Island. And uh, 
pretty exciting and fun. Yeah, and Paul, it's it's really interesting because um, you know obviously we're based in Philadelphia and. This year are really kind of doubling down on our, our Philadelphia activities, really sort of saying, you know, we've we've learned a lot since the organization started in 2010. We've done a lot in the private equity VC, social entrepreneurship area, impact investing and getting that in. And now we're looking and saying, you know, what what other resources can we bear? And where, where's another way to get real leverage in Philadelphia? And we're seeing some really interesting real estate opportunities Um Shift Capital is one focusing on Kensington, trying to do sort of mixed use. We have other people who are trying to do development in in Temple around the Opportunity Zones. So, you know, what are you seeing in trends for um, urban development uh, with with an impact focus? Well, you referenced the Opportunity Zones, and I think that's brought a lot of attention uh, and a lot of capital to uh, underserved and uh, underprivileged communities and neighborhoods and urban areas all around the country. And it's really affected a shift of some of the larger, more established developers to to work in areas that maybe they wouldn't have. Uh, otherwise, the risk-adjusted return profile for them might have been disadvantaged. Uh, they, they may have decided to work in easier areas, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I see that dynamic happening. You know, the, the other dynamic that's happening, I think, is the... <clears throat> Most of the developers working in our urban areas are uh, are working on amazing projects that are typically at a smaller scale to institutional capital or sometimes family office capital. You know, their equity needs are maybe a million to five million, which mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately falls underneath a lot of people's requirements to place capital. And so one of the things that, that, that we're doing at New Island Capital, and I think others uh, are as well, is figuring out ways in which we can build a, build a farm team, build a grassroots or, or, or syndicate money so that there is uh, more capital going to, to, this, to this set of developers who are, who are starting off, emerging managers, so to speak. Because um, that's really where the energy, I think, right now the, in the field is, and where the future lies. Hmm. Um, it's uh, it's a, uh, I think it's unfortunate but true that there's not a lot of established impact real estate developers in the country. It's a thin field. It's starting off, and so I think us as capital providers need to help build the field. So what would you say, just to give our listeners sort of that that spectrum, you, you sort of said, you know, like if their equity needs are about a million, that's pretty small for institutional capital. Right. What is the scale of, of a project that would be worthwhile for the clients at New Island type that they tend to work with? We're, we're, typically, we're typically larger checks, check sizes for long-term projects. You know, we're, we're a very different – being a family office, we have patient capital. We tend to look at longer horizons for for our investment to to fully mature than a typical private equity real estate firm, which would be you know trying to generate the returns on a five to seven year. We're more a ten plus year kind of horizon for our investments, um, and so and we're also a small a small team, so we're we're not able to do you know dozens and dozens of deals. Sure. We typically look. We typically look more in the in the ten million and above range okay. in our in our for our investment criteria um, for some of those factors, and and look to be a partner for a long time. 
So what types of projects, I mean, not necessarily specific projects, but, you know, when I think about um, some of the work that you've done in your past, you talked about green or brownfields. Um, we, we've talked about housing or, you know, sort of brought up housing. And, and when uh, Cheryl brought up shift capital here in Philadelphia, that's like light manufacturing mm-hmm. and, and sort of mixed use development. Um, what types of projects have impact that you look for? Well, we invest under uh, a, a general theme of the environment, sustainability, environmental resilience. So most of the investments uh, fall under that umbrella uh, impact theme, we call it. Uh, to a certain extent, we also uh, invest in, a, in just society as another impact theme and, um, and economic resilience and giving people economic opportunities. So those are the two main areas that we focus on. There's lots of other impact areas that we could, <laughs> we could also work on, but you, know, you need to focus. Yeah. Um, so within the environmental theme, we're, we're focused on building portfolios of high-performance real estate assets. And it's our, it's our belief that those kind of real estate assets, the, one, the ones that are net zero or way above lead platinum, let's say, um, consuming less carbon, um, <clears throat> that, uh, they're, they're, they're built so that they consume less carbon or no carbon uh, above what they can produce themselves. Um, we believe those kind of assets will outperform conventional assets over a long term and will become more desirable as assets to be purchased by institutional capital in the future. We're beginning to see that now. So we're building portfolios around uh, residential and commercial properties that fit that profile. Yeah, and it's, um, it's interesting in Philadelphia, and I, you know, I know you know Philadelphia well, but after decades of declining population, we're building our population back up, which I think is an interesting opportunity for the city and the region to think carefully about how you how you infill, how you create new buildings, how you think about what the the residential space and and the uh, accumulation of other other kinds of manufacturing space could look like. Um, you know, so I know that the uh, PIDC and the Urban Land Institute are really trying to think about light manufacturing. How do you use space for the jobs in the future kind of stuff? So there's a, a lot of interesting work going on, I think, in real estate and people thinking about this as a, as a lever for change rather than just a building. Absolutely. I think real estate has always been, has always been a way in which communities can either uh, – grow quickly and evolve or devolve quickly. It, it's sort of a, a, a chalice for, for change in that so much, so much interaction, human interaction happens in our cities around our buildings. And the, the architecture, the, the openness of buildings, I think really helps or hurts those, those kind of dynamics. Absolutely. And Paul, I, you know, you, you mentioned, or, you know, through your background and, and the sustainability lens that, that New Island takes. Um, but you also said uh, a, just society and which sort of makes me think of more like inclusive economic development. We think about gentrification issues, um, displacement. Um, you talked about net zero carbon as sort of one of those metrics or something that you sort of look at um, for the real for, for the sustainability lens. What does the just society, like mm, what are some mm-hmm. of those things that you're looking for um, in, in those investments? We think there's meaningful work to do in, in workforce housing. And, and critically needed work to do in in that area. Um, so that's workforce housing is a you know the term of art, and 
it, it really means building uh, homes that can be afforded or, or rented, either uh, rented or afforded to purchase to people who are making around the 80% average median income. So those are the participants in, uh, in our economy who are providing these great services like uh, firefighters, policemen, school teachers, um, all kinds of, of really of really important parts of keeping our society going and, and contributing to everybody uh, who, are, who are increasingly having a really hard time finding an affordable place to live okay. in our urban areas. Uh, it's just the dynamics of income inequality that's taking place in the whole country is played out as well as real estate. So we're really interested in, just as I said about portfolios of high-performance uh, sustainable properties of looking at building portfolios of workforce housing that we maintain as workforce housing, um, always avail- available at certain price points and providing these these great stable housing opportunities that uh, that give people an opportunity to move, you know, to move through their careers or to be stable in, in a career that maybe isn't, you know, finance or paying that much, but really essential to the uh, to the economy. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, and we are speaking with Paul Rabinovich, who is the principal of real estate at New Island Capital. And Paul, I'm going to um, pivot a little bit just because I want to talk about something that interests me, uh, especially as this... <laughs> especially it's about her this... birthday. We'll let her do it. <laughs> it's my birthday party. Um, talk. Tell us about a little bit about the work at the Nature Conservancy, because that's an organization, frankly, that I've been following for a very long time. There have been some very early interesting reports about how the Nature Conservancy really pivoted to sort of think about how are we really going to make a difference. You know, we, we want to preserve wild lands. And we want there to be um, a good ecosystems around that. And then they started sort of saying part of what this takes is we're going to have to just buy up a lot of land and a lot of land that is connected to each other. So talk to talk to us a little bit about, you know, we've talked a lot about the urban stuff. Talk a little bit about the rural stuff that you did at the uh, Nature Conservancy. Uh, certainly. Uh, it's a terrific organization. I uh, encourage everybody listening to uh, send them a check. They're doing amazing work. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't lo- I no longer work with them. I'm on no boards. I just believe in, in the work they're doing. Yeah. Um, it's a conservation organization that's, that's focused solely on preserving biodiversity. You know, the, the mission of the organization is preserving the plants and animals you know, that the world needs to survive. And uh, takes that mission very seriously, has a huge science uh, team behind it to figure out where is the, the hotspots on the planet that we need to acquire in order to try to slow down the extinction crisis and try to slow down, you know, uh, some of the, some of the um, global warming effects that we're feeling. So the Nature Conservancy uh, buys land and water uh, across the world uh, that they believe is highly biological, biologically important. And that's, the, that's sort of the critical part of the Nature Conservancy. It's, it's at its heart, it's a real estate operation yeah. <laughs> driven yeah. by science and mission because it believes that the best way to preserve something is to acquire it. And so it raises it raises nonprofit dollars and leverages that against government money and is able to buy and build huge nature preserves. Um, it's a it's an old you know rather than engaging in advocacy, which is fine uh, and and appropriate in some places, it just goes directly to the problem and okay, we'll buy it <laughs> and then we can control it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it exactly. 
Uh, and, you know, an example, one of the things that I did while I was at the Nature Conservancy was a very early impact investment uh, in the water, actually, and uh, sort of got me started along this path where there was a, a company called the Blue Points Oyster Company. I'm sure many people have had Blue Points Oysters before. Yeah. Um, they were based on Long Island in the Great South Bay, and they owned, uh, from a going back to a colonial patent, 25,000 acres of bay bottom land in the Great South Bay, which is about about a third of the Great South Bay. I didn't know you can um, own underwater land. Well, it's it's it goes back to a to a like a King George patent, okay. and you can't unless you got a patent from the king, and then you've got title going going back to that time. Wow. Um, they had essentially strip mined the bottom of the bay and rendered it lifeless. There was no, they, they had run themselves out of business by over harvesting. And what we did was we acquired 25,000 acres of uh, bay bottom land. We bought the Blue Point Oyster Company and we decided to do the reverse is we raised money not only to buy the land, but to start seeding the bay. And we raised enough money to plant the first uh, million clams in the, uh, in the bay. Now, that was, that was about eight or ten years ago. My understanding is that on the impact side of that, the clam population has gone from a million to over 10 million. Wow. So I don't know what the IRR is on that or <laughs> the clam multiple, but uh, it's a giant clam multiple. <laughs> I think that's going to be my favorite part of the show, the clam multiple. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was, you know, and that's, that's the sort of what the Nature Conservancy does is, is not just to, to buy the bay. We, we know we bought a damaged bay, but also to restore it and to bring it back to health. And that, that's why I think they're a great organization. And that's really why I thought that, uh, that you know, impact investing was the way to go as well as we can solve problems. And so, I, you know, that is uh, – it's super interesting because it re- reminds me of some work that my husband did when he was at the Future Charitable Trust. They didn't buy any land as far as I know. But, it, you know, just sort of the – you know, from New York to Virginia, you know, just the pollution of, of the, the bays and the, the seashore there – um, I think like the Manhattan fish is back um, after a lot of efforts and clams are back in the in the bay. So it's it's really interesting to see the fruition of a lot of these, you know, uh, these efforts come together for the revitalization of these ecosystems because they're so important for the entire ecosystem. Well, and I think, too, what's fun about the uh, Nature Conservancy approach is they recognize that you need the size. You know, you can't. It's one thing to have a little parklet in in urban Philadelphia, and that's nice for the locals, but that's not going to bring biodiversity. You've got to have a large swath of land so that you're able to just have things come back. Yeah, that's true. And connectivity is important to that as well. It's, uh, various species like to move around, and if uh, and and they they need to have corridors and pathways in which they can they can migrate. Right, we have a rapidly changing. Uh, uh, climate and animals need to move to get to you know the drier or the warmer or the appropriately colder place. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty it's pretty complicated, and that's you know part of what the work is that I'm doing in in real estate. I feel is uh, our our buildings, uh, all of them as a as a total contribute forty percent to the world's carbon load. Forty um, percent, which is the largest percentage, come from buildings. Twenty percent comes from in- industrial uses. Twenty percent comes from transportation. So, addressing how we use, how we build our buildings 
And if we can do it in a carbon neutral way, could make a huge change in, uh, in climate change and then biodiversity. That's, that's where I get my own personal motivation to do this kind of work and to build these kind of portfolios and to think about what kind of buildings we're building. So I'm, I'm a little surprised by that statistics about the 40 percent. Um, I, I think I would have thought more from transportation or manufacturing. So is that mostly because of how the buildings are built or how they're used afterwards? Or is it maybe both? Great, great question. Uh, it's both. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you build if you build a leaky balloon, uh, it's still going to be leaking no matter who uses it. Right, right. right. Okay. So it, I guess it has to start from from how it's built. And, you know, there's a, there's a great quote. I think it's Bill McKibben's quote who talk, who talks specifically about real estate and what we need to do in order to address the carbon loading and the, the carbon profile of buildings. And, you know, and I, I guess to a certain degree talks about greenwashing, you know, and says we have to stop we have to stop building these buildings and putting plaques on them that, that aren't really substantially different than a conventionally built building. And if you think about it, what we're what we're doing right now as a planet is we're heading towards the cliff at sixty miles an hour. And if you slow down to thirty miles an hour, it's not going to prevent you from going over the cliff. It'll just take you a little longer. Turn around, yeah. <laughs> right? So that's that's the that's the idea. I mean, you know, it, it's a little bit scary and sobering, and I agree. And it's you know maybe not what everybody wants to hear, but I I think if you're a serious student of what's happening on the on the planet and where the sources of those problems are coming from, you kind of realize that we we need to change how we're building these buildings. They, they need to be able to produce their own energy um, or be self-sustaining, and, which we now have the technology to do. Um, it, at New Island, we've invested in and uh, uh, net zero office buildings that, that are up and running, and, um, <clears throat> and they work great. And they're not in necessarily in uh, you know, what people might think like San Diego or these sunny locations. They're in places that get snow and less sun, and they, they operate well. Now, that said, and you're correct, uh, a net-zero office building or, or any kind of high-performance sustainable building, is um, it requires a greater operational uh, program. You need, to, you need to educate the people mm-hmm. about putting on a sweater versus turning up the heat, you know, <laughs> how many things are going to plug into the wall, all those sorts of things. They're education processes. They're not hard. But they, are, they have to be ongoing. Um, and the other trend that I, that I think is great in, in real estate right now, to add on to it, and something we invest towards is our buildings as, as places that can be restorative and regenerative to your health. You know, wellness is a, is a big impact theme these days and something that we are looking at and investing in as well is what can buildings do to enhance our health? Do they need to be uh, like not uh, dark cavern- cavernous spaces where you're in a cubicle with no access to <laughs> sunlight? <laughs> that, well, that's one of them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not speaking from experience or anything. Not that our offices are like no. that now, but in the past, <laughs> dark and cavernous, or really loud. You know, no acoustical comfort. Yeah, mm. or there's lots of buildings that thermal comfort is really out of whack. Oh, please. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we, we go from. We have these sort of three conjoined offices, and one of them, the folks are having fans, and the other ones, we've got space heaters. It's like Goldilocks. Right. And we hate it. And we, we, I mean, we are environmentally conscious, and we hate it, but like we, it's like 
we sometimes you have to wear gloves. It's yeah, so yeah. cold in our right. office. Yeah, right. All those things, and then you know the other part of buildings that people don't know so much about is that they're they're built with many times you know very toxic uh, components. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a lot of chemicals that go into the construction of or into building construction materials, and um, there's a whole movement to. At least in California, there's a red list, you know, and so you're not allowed to. If you build with a red list chemical in the building, you need to put a plaque on the, on the outside of the building. Mm. Um, I've seen those. Know, yeah, yeah. I've seen those plaques, and so I wondered what they were. Yeah. That's that's what they are. They're warnings to people that you're going into a place that was built with some sort of building components. I, I think, I hope, let me say it that way, I hope that our building, and I'm talking about all buildings, residential buildings, office buildings, uh, multifamily buildings uh, are going to go the same way as as food. You know, for 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 a long time now, we've been used to looking for the organic labels on our food, and it makes sense to us to put an organic piece of fruit into our body as being more health uh, more healthy choice. Right? If you can afford it, that's great. I'm, of course, I'll buy organic. I don't want to put chemicals in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we've as a population, you know, not thought about, well, are the spaces that I'm inhabiting, that I'm sleeping in or working in, are those organic? <laughs> and the answer is no, is, is absolutely not. They're not. And I think now people are coming around to the realization, well, hey, if I'm used to having organic food, I want to be an organic home. I want to be in an organic office. Um, and that is a trend that's emerging and is going to be, I hope, more prevalent, you know, as we move forward, is having some sort of certifications around that. And some sort of protocols, and then also some supply, uh, not just supply of buildings, but also supply of building materials. Very, very difficult to source non-toxic building materials, believe it or not. Yeah, and, and is this basically about new building, Paul? I mean, I live in a very old row house in Philadelphia. I don't even want to guess about <laughs> the environmental stuff uh, involved with that. Is there is there retrofitting opportunities around this, or is it really just having to sort of gut things or build new? Uh, that tells me everything I need. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I, I don't want to I, I don't want to lie to you. the The answer is the built, gutting things and building new will always re- result in a better environmental and a better result, right? We can use better building materials. We can fix some of the inherent problems. Um, it'll, it'll result in a higher performance level. But I guess from an impact prof- perspective, what you need to think about is, well, somebody put a lot of energy and, and, and resources into the building materials that you already have in your, in your building. And can you intelligently surgically remove the, only the parts that are causing the problems, right? So that you're not throwing out, you know, becoming part of a disposable society and throwing out a bunch of stuff just so you can build it all new again. That, that's, that's, that's a tricky question and, uh, and something, you know, we think about a lot. The answer to your question, though, is yes. You can retrofit. You can add better air ventilation systems. You could add better lighting systems. You can add uh, non-toxic furniture and things like that. Um, and you can make it a healthier living environment for sure. So, Paul, I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit to talk about conversations you have as an investor now to, you know, emerging managers or developers. Um, 
and, and really think through how you facilitate a conversation that might, if at all, take a systems view. So we've talked about the building supplies, the the technology that will go into helping, you know, get to that net zero carbon. Um, I'm thinking of transit, something that you don't necessarily control, but like how do how do the different things that sort of go around development influence the conversations that you have as an investor? Wow. You know, I one of the things that we're that I focus on a lot is um, is, is that development partner um, mm-hmm. and making sure that we're aligned with them, not just on a financial basis that we both agree, you know, that we want to get to a certain return and so forth. And you know, that com- that comes later, really, to a certain extent. But the alignment has to be around: um, are they motivated to achieve impact? You know, are they are they uh, do, do we think about it in the same way, holistically, like you just said? It's not just about the building and what's going into the building, but how it influences the community, how connected it is to transit, um, whether there is a, a way that it's interactive with the community, bring people in for, you know, art galleries or talks or things like that, so that it's an engaged piece, you know, catalytic to the rebuilding the fabric of society, all of those sorts of things go into that initial conversation of, do we want to work with you? That's, sure. Right. But, you know, I, I think for us as investors, we are, we're, as, as my, our CEO, my boss tells me, you know, you're not a developer anymore. You have to hang that up. And so I always have to kind of like train myself to, <laughs> to resist that temptation and getting back in there and trenching. You know, so I need to make sure that I'm aligned with that partner and then let them do their work mm-hmm. of making sure all of those things that I just mentioned about transit and community and the building's performance and so forth are managed. You know, we're, we're really goal setting with them and making sure that what we want, you know, we want to see happen with this investment is, is clearly communicated. And, and they're, they're responsible as a developer to... To, to, to march that, that trail, you know, or cut the trail as it needs be and to, and to get, get to the end result. And that's, that's what they get paid for. And, uh, yeah. And I think, yeah. Paul, I think what's interesting is you, you really actually got to where I was hoping you would go with that in terms of you as the former developer, right. how that, you know, has informed the conversations that you have since you know it inside and out and you can have those conversations, but you, you aren't the implementer now. And as the investor, you have to trust that it's going to happen. So thank you for, for touching on that. And as we wrap up this segment, I have one other, I hope, sort of quick question. And that's, um, you know, coming from the developer side, being an investor now, thinking about the supply of capital and, you know, new developers coming online, emerging developers or, or fund managers coming online, how's supply and demand coming, coming in this space? I think there's a lot of capital in the, in the real estate impact investing world. There's a lot of capital out there um, for, for, for fewer developers who are at uh, the institutional scale. I would love to see more capital available to the grassroots emerging managers who are doing exciting small-scale work. Some of the most exciting work, I think, in the country is in our urban areas at a smaller scale, and I would love to see more capital go there. Otherwise, there's a lot of capital available, uh, and we, we need more developers. Well, that sounds like a call to action for our listeners if you are a real and estate our real developer. real estate students. Yeah, that the capital's out there. So so definitely think about that. 
Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've been speaking with Paul Rabinovich, who's the principal of real estate at New Island Capital. We're going to take a short break, but please stick with us. Our next segment is our open segment, where we're going to recap some of our guests, as well as hear from you, our listeners. Uh, if you have a question about something you heard on the show today, uh, feel free to give us a ring at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM one thirty two. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 